Replayable is brought to you by Floodgate Games, the creators of Skyrocket's Festivals of Fire. In Skyrocket's, players take turns to play cards and flip the matching sand timers, which represent your fireworks without letting any of them run out. Do all this while working together to advance along the countdown track to win. Skyrockets is a standalone game inspired by the hit game Kites, Time to Fly. It is being previewed at Spiel in Essen and at PAX Unplugged. Pre-orders will open on December 4th at floodgategames.com. Welcome to Replayable, where we go into depth on our favorite tabletop games that keep us coming back again and again. I'm the start player, Todd, and today I'm joined by David and Paul. For our 14th episode, we're going to talk about the Martin Wallace classic Brass. That's Brass Lancashire, if we must. It was originally released in 2007 by Warfrog Games and then re-released in 2017 by Roxley. You guys ready to get your industry started? Yeah, let's develop this backwater berg into an industrial powerhouse. Okay, that was amazing. To have fun following that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, flip my cotton. Let's go. Brass is an economic strategy game that tells the story of competing cotton entrepreneurs in Lancashire during the Industrial Revolution. You must develop, build, and establish your industries and network so that you can capitalize demand for iron, coal, and cotton. The game is played over two halves, the canal phase and the rail phase. Your hand of cards determines where and what you can build, meaning your strategy is heavily influenced by those cards. We've got a long history with this game. Yeah, well, the long history starts when there was, I guess, a counterculture on BGG of too many people only playing games once or twice and then buying a new one. So during that time, we decided, hey, let's let's play a game 10 times in one year. And then we said, that's too easy. Let's play a game 20 times in one year. And we decided to do brass 20 times in a single year. And yeah, it, I think it, looking back, it really changed the way we look at board games and it, it made us more of a cohesive gaming group. I mean, and it's worth noting that was a decade ago. Yeah, that was 2013 and kind of the near nearer the origin of us as a gaming group and i remember having the discussions on that's that's a great idea let's do it let's spelunk a game like let's go really deep into <laughs> one game go you know rather than breadth and cult of the new was you know it's ongoing now but that was starting to become a phrase that we'd hear more and more and the ogs were kind of getting forgotten as the new games were coming out and every week i'm learning a new game but what i really want is a game that I'm not going to understand the first few times I play. And the 10th play is very different from my third play. And the 20th play is even different from that. And the only way to find that game is to actually do it and play that many times. Right. But I remember having conversations at the time as to what game can we do this with? And I wish I would remember the other candidates we had because, you know, it wasn't going to be Ticket to Ride. You know, it wasn't going to be a game that's a repetitive kind of game. It has to be a game that's going to reward what we're putting into it. And, you know, Brass certainly rewarded us. Yeah, I remember succeeding in getting to 20 plays. I don't know if all of us did, but we we tried to repeat that a couple of years ongoing afterwards. And we just never found a game that had the same staying power with our group. 
Well, I was going to say, there's so many games that you think, man, this is awesome. I love this game. But after 10 plays, you're like, yeah, I got it. It's good. I got it. <laughs> and it's it's not going to continue to unfold. And it's very rare that you find those games. I mean, we could make a list of 10 games maybe that fit that were from 18xx to that and age of steam and a lot of them happen to be martin wallace games that just the layers and layers just keep coming yeah so i thought you were going to say even like dune imperium and my point about that was going to be yeah we played that one a lot uh, especially last year but it didn't click with everybody in the group and i think one of the things brass brought to the table is that it clicked with all of us so it was easier to get to 20 because nobody threw his hands up and were like oh, okay I'm, i've i've had enough of this exactly well and at that time too there was more people involved drew was involved so it wasn't the same four people playing over and over group metas would emerge but kind of at different rates for different people because i would sometimes play a three player that paul wasn't even a part of or you know, he's playing a, even on the same night at tables back to back. We're playing at separate tables and it's just. Oh, yeah, was, that did happen a couple of times. Yeah, because there's so many of us were just playing brass, like trying to get our, our reps in. Right. And when we say brass, it's it was just called brass. I know. <laughs> we had never know. heard of Lancashire. Yeah, go yawners. <laughs> go yawners versus what was it? The Brummies? Yeah, the Brummies. Dave, you mentioned that Martin Wallace has got a couple of these games that we've taken a crack at. Like we've done a pot already on Age of Steam, and that's another popular one. Let's talk about Martin Wallace. Is this guy just the master of industrial simulation? Because he's got so many heavy hitters in this category. We're talking about Brass Age of Steam. We've got Anno 1800. There's Automobile. There's Tinner's Trail. I mean, this is clearly his comfort zone. So is he the master of industrial simulation? Yeah, so I would agree with that. I mean, it, interesting, though, I didn't really thought about that, is that they're industrial revolution games. Like, that's just the theme. But I guess the theme, we'll talk about it more later in this, is that the theme does integrate very well. But when I think of Martin Wallace games, I think of, you know, heavy economic games. I think of games where you can shoot yourself in the foot on turn one, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, if turn one isn't important, why is it in, in, in the game at all? Yeah, I think so. It's even... Even Tinner's Trail and uh, Steel Driver, anytime you bring a Martin Wallace to the table, it has a distinct feel to it. And you know that you're in for something a little a little more interesting, right? Yeah, I personally enjoy Automobile as well. And the thing all of these games have in common is that they allow you to build your position as a player. You start with being able to do very little and by the end of the game, you're able to accomplish a huge amount each turn. Right. I also think he's just a master of punishing finance models. You start out not being able to do a lot, like you say, Paul, and as you expand, things are getting more expensive, but then costs coming out of the woodwork is another hallmark of Martin Wallace games, whether it was the income reduction in Age of Steam or here it is, you know, you can take a loan at any time, but it it drops you back three income steps. And then when you are crawling back up, it's, you know, not every step forward is a full income step. So it it's easier to lose money than it is to make money in this game. And it just seems to be a hallmark of his. Yeah, I think uh, to enjoy most Wallace titles, you have to enjoy going into debt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have to get uncomfortable. You have to take risks. And uh, in the game we played last night, I was at negative nine on the income track. So, you know, I was every income when you guys might be making three bucks. I'm paying nine bucks. But 
like Greg did, you know, a few games ago, because of that uh, capital that I had from that, I was able to come charging. Now, I don't know how well it worked out, but, uh, you know, dug out of that hole and was back in it. Right. What does that say about strategy versus opportunism, which I think is another big part that plays in this game? They're the things you want to do, and then they're the things you can do inexpensively right now. I feel like that's another thread to follow. I think it's important to set the framework that in brass, at least when you start, there's only one optimal strategy, and that is flipping as much coal as you possibly can. But once a whole bunch of players start doing that, it opens up a new strategy of supplying ports to all the different cotton players. And then that's something we found in our, our 20 plays years. All of a sudden, the port players started winning right. <laughs> after game mm-hmm. 10 or whatever it was. And then I feel like we found that there's a bit of a Nash equilibrium where if there's <laughs> two cotton players and one port player, they're dead even. But the game allows you to play four player. And so what does that fourth player do? And one one strategy we realized was, well, if, if everybody else is kind of uh, hindered, then focusing on rail and just supplying iron coal can be a winning strategy. So it's really this collaborative competition of deciding who gets which strategy because there's very few winning strategies in the game of brass Lancashire. Right. Well, that gets into one of the key elements I like about the game is that disparity between what I want to do and what the game is letting me do. I want to put three cotton out and flip it before the end of the canal era. That's what I want to do. But then the game (laughs) starts giving me cards, you know, and you can choose Do you try to swim against that flow and ultimately be frustrated that it's not giving you what you want to do? Or do you give yourself over to the game and say, and we say this all the time when we're playing, like there's something I want to do, but the game's telling me to do something else. Exactly. Finding that balance between forcing your will and just listening to the fates. (laughs) Yeah, which I think Roxley identified with their inclusion of the scout action. They make it a little easier to, to swim upstream. All right, but now we've now we're talking about a different yeah, game. And <laughs> well, yeah, and other things about Birmingham where they. Okay, it, I mean, to me, brass is brass, but yeah, I, I get your point. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's an interesting point to make because when you buy the Roxley version of Lancashire, you don't get the scout cards. Right now, you could, I guess, try to layer them in. If you had both copies, you could try playing the original game with the scout action with something we've not tried. Maybe we talked about that at House Rules. You're jumping ahead, Todd. Yeah, right. <laughs> but originally, it was spend two cards as a wild to kind of make up that difference. One thing that I think this is a good point to talk about it that I find interesting is the opening in brass. Do you guys think it's planned or? Do you, do you think there is only really one way to do the first turn? Is, is it Puerto Rico as to where you must open with, you know, quarry or whatever it is in Puerto uh, Rico? No, I, I, I think if the game has given you a ton of iron and coal cards, that building coal might actually be better than developing. But if, if you can conceivably go the cotton route, then you must develop. Right. Because we found in our most recent plays... Player one and player two develop cotton. Player three and player four are going to end up the port players and compete for the shipyards or, or you know, getting their uh, coal and iron out. And being the third player, like if I'm the third player 
and I'm dealt a bunch of cotton and cotton cities and opportunities, I already feel like, well, the game's telling me to do one thing, but my player order is telling me I'm not going to do cotton right now. I didn't, the, the opening feels pretty rote, but at the same time, I'm supposed to follow what the cards are telling me. So I do feel a little conflict in that when I'm playing the game. Which is why you have the ability to take a loan. <laughs> Turn one loan? Yeah. Yeah, we saw that happen last night. Right. Well, but if two players before me develop their cotton, I'm not going to develop cottons. Probably. Why not? You can still fight for it. Yeah. They haven't gotten to level two yet. Yeah. If your hand is better tuned for cotton, then you got to assume theirs isn't. And they're trying to force the issue because of turn order. And that's that's what's wonderful about a four-player brass. Right? Yeah, absolutely. In the beginning of the game, though, you see, is it half of your hand? You see eight cards. Right. And you're going to end up... Uh, of the 15, you're going to play for canal phase, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you see about half of your cards. The other half of your cards, who knows what you're going to get. So, right. yeah, it, it's important to listen to your cards. But I, it just seems like a lot of times my first turn is kind of dictated for me based on player order. Yeah. And that just could be groupthink with us right now. No, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. But what about the idea of opportunism? So what I mean here is like someone just built steel. You now have an opportunity to do a real cheap develop that you weren't planning on taking, but now the opportunity is there. Then you start thinking, do I have the tempo? Can I take the pause to develop now? Will I still be able to, you know, if I'm playing cotton, will I still be able to ship later and get to foreign markets before someone else ships and takes those tiles away and I have to worry about connections to ports? Yeah, I think that is the big differentiator between the two versions of Brass, actually, is that in Lancashire, you have a strategy that you need to plan out and it does not do well with wrenches or 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 even grease right. being added <laughs> but birmingham i think is the opposite it's it's almost encouraging you the way they change the design to take those opportunities well sometimes those opportunities like they're just i was going to do this but now the iron is market is empty i can overbuild and make a ton of money on iron or the iron market's full and I just developed, you know, already. Now, I guess I could just develop all my tiles away. If you guys keep giving me $1 or free iron at some point, right. I have to stop developing and actually build. But there's <laughs> definitely, I've got my strategy. Here's what I'm trying to do. But, oh, hello, you just left me all of this coal. I can just double rail for cheap or, or whatever it is. And so right. that's, yeah. the, that's the strategy versus tactical you know, going with the flow is what the game, the game is constantly telling you what you should do. Are you listening is the big question. I agree. Let's go back and talk about the fourth player chaos that gets inserted, right? With at three players, there's enough room for two on cotton, one on shipyards. And then that fourth player is just tar starting to crab. I also feel like it's not even as cut and dried as two cotton, one shipyard and somebody doing something. It disrupts everybody. You, it's hard to be a yes. pure cotton player mm -hmm. in a four-player game. In Lancashire, yes. Right. It disrupts everybody. And, you know, sometimes you can really jump on those opportunities, which is what led Greg to win our last play, is he was able to, even though he's going cotton very strictly, he was still able to, through the, <laughs> the grace of the cards that were given him and the way we were emptying out the market, overbuild each and every one of us. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, iron and coal are pretty much 
up for grabs between everybody that in Lancashire, you're probably focusing on cotton or ports. I don't think there's a strong blended strategy because then you're just doing them all at level two and you're not getting anything up to level four. So you really got to... I think between getting all your iron out and dominating rail, there can be a blended strategy. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Because rail is so powerful. It's... When you're counting up your it's points, huge, at huge the end points, of the- especially if you set yourself up to be the first to build, and you can throw out four at the very beginning of the rail phase, you know that can add up to what is it over twenty points? Yeah, right. I think what I hadn't really looked at it, but when you look at final scores in the what one sixties to one eighties, and coming in with rail points, we've seen 60, 70, 80 points in rail. Is that right? I feel like we've seen that much. Yes. I mean, if you get yes. all 16 rails out, 16 times four is kind of probably an average. I mean, that's that's a ton uh, of points coming right. from rail alone. And I, I think if, if you're building all your rail and you're doing it early in turn order, you're going to get more than, than an average of four per rail, yeah. maybe five per rail. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, there was that one game I had where I double-double railed at the start of the rail phase, and I took four out of the five spokes coming out of Manchester. Yep. You're going, man. You that's the Man United strategy, <laughs> and it was great for rail points, but it turned out to be fairly weak for network building. It became harder for me to expand out of that home thing because you guys sapped up the Correct. snapped up the surrounding spokes, and suddenly it was like, oh, I need city cards now because I can't just stay in network and drop an industry card to expand my network. Right, and and I I think with our spelunking, we've learned that everybody has to build rail yes right uh, even even the cotton players you can't just leave it to one or two people because they'll run away with the game yeah it's really just how much rail how much rail can you build well and right. one of the things before we move on from it too much one of the things that you had mentioned the tempo or the flow of the game that i find super interesting is that constant puzzle of every turn there's three or four things i want to accomplish but i can only do two although sometimes i can do four actions in a row and right. But manipulating that turn order or manipulating like I, I need to build a canal and a cotton and then ship it before Todd builds his cotton and ships it and takes my port or, you know, whatever it is. And so that constant conflict as to these four things I need to get done in the next two turns. And now you just left me like cheap iron or no iron and dealing with that. That is the, to me, that's the entire game. That's the fun of the game is navigating that, keeping your eye on the prize, but zigging and zagging as the game goes along. <laughs> don't, don't forget the most difficult decision, which card to play. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so many times I'm like, why did I play that card two turns ago? I wish it was in my hand now. I said like, that last night. Like, I wish I had this city. Oh, here it is in my discard pile from three turns ago. <laughs> <laughs> I used it for a load. Yeah, because uh, yeah. I didn't know. Because you don't you don't know where you're, the game state, especially if you're going last. Sometimes I don't even want to look at the board. I have no idea what the game state's going to be when it gets to me. I don't want to get my hopes up. But by the time you guys build and canals and block things off and flip things over, like who knows what I'm going to be faced with. Yeah, we had a situation crop up where I think you were angling to do that four turns in a row thing. And I... <laughs> You yeah. know where I'm going I with remember. this, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, so I went third, and I did, like, loan and ship. 
and I spent nothing. And so immediately your plans for four, there was nothing you could do. I mean, you obviously can't spend less than zero. So I was going to go first in the next round. Right. Actually, I had left two iron on the board and Dave wanted to be first to ship. Oh, that's right. But yes. you, were, you were able to loan and develop for zero <laughs> and then ship first on the next turn. That was it. And that's that made Dave cry. <laughs> I, I remember it specifically. And that, that's Birmingham. And you took all the beer is what it was. And so now yeah, yeah. I want to ship and I wanted to build a third cotton. And now there's just too much that I need to get done in order to get that ship. So I just shipped my two cotton. I mean, it's it's a game of compromises. Rarely on your turns. Do you, this is what I wanted to do, and this is what I was able to do. Most of your turns, oh, it's what I wanted to do, but this is what I eked out. Yeah. I mean, I remember another game we were playing where I thought I had spent very little. I think I had, you know, maybe done a loan build. I had spent all of like eight bucks, and you guys were in the 20s. You had done big builds. And then Greg goes last, and then he spends seven. He very intentionally calculates the most that he can spend and still get to go first. And I thought that was, I mean, he ended up doing the same thing similar to uh, what happened last night, is that he he shipped to foreign markets and he basically drained the track there so that I was going to be at risk if I tried to sell, also sell to foreign markets. But he had it all figured out. And I, at the time, I just, I hated it and I totally respected it. <laughs> well, that that negotiating turn order that way, I mean, whenever you're going forth, whenever you're going last, I mean, you're always thinking about what did everybody else spend? How can I get four actions in a row? And because right. that's just so strong. I agree. We've talked about overbuilding. And when does that become something you should look at? It's actually a weak part of my game. You know, that's, that's been a recent realization to me is just how strong overbuilding is because if you can identify the point leader and overbuild one of their industry tiles not only are you giving yourself points but you're stealing them away from the leader and it's it's a huge swing and i encourage everyone to do it at every opportunity (laughs) yeah i remember when we first started we would oh like you get the opportunity and you're like oh look cool i can overbuild but we played a couple nights ago i that's the most overbuilding i've ever seen in a game like we had I don't know, five or six overbuilds. I overbuilt twice. I think other people did too. And not overbuilding ourselves, overbuilding each other. Knives out. Yeah. And now that we can see how to manipulate it, it's not just I got lucky that I happen to have my four iron available and there happens to be no iron in the market. Maybe that's an opportunity where you go from fourth to first. So you take those four actions in a row to develop, even though it's expensive, to drain out the iron market and then overbuild make all that money and yeah it's kind of like a game of brinksmanship like who's going to resupply because if nobody does i get to overbuild yeah and it's also you know be careful of the player who's going before you or you know some it's very easy for one player to set up another player for an overbuild if they aren't paying attention right one of the things that i like about lancashire specifically and you know there are differences in birmingham is how player driven it is i mean there's you know, player versus game, as we've been talking about, play the cards you're given, where is the market, you know, what's going on in the game state. But then there's player versus player. Whose port am I going to ship? Who's, uh, you know, oh, right. am I going to build a port and let the lead player flip his, you know, four cotton mill or something like that? Alliances start to emerge because the cotton players need the port players and, and vice versa. And when we were just talking about how we had a ton of overbuilds, and that's a very sad story that I could tell of when I overbuilt Greg, when I should have overbuilt Paul, is that's a case of 
who's winning the game right now because I'm going to take points from somebody. And right. there is so much player-driven stuff in this game where I'm going to stab you in the back, I'm going to work together with you in various cases, and how we play each other is how we're going to do in the game. Well, and sometimes that even comes down to actions we're taking, right? Because how many times have we played where you'll be like, hey, Todd, are you going to build a rail? Because if you do, I will build a port, right? We start negotiating before the actions are even taken. You know, how are we going to ally this particular round? And I think that's sort pretty of. cool. <laughs> we, we do kind of negotiate, but often the answer is, you know, maybe I'll build that canal. Stop nagging me about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different kind of negotiation. <laughs> but maybe if I can get taken advantage binding. of it. <laughs> yeah, leave me alone. Don't you know? Maybe I'll I'll use your port. Leave me alone. <laughs> right. The I think you know what we're saying is the design of Lancashire forces some amount of cooperation to reach those high scores. Yeah. Like you can go it on your own, and if everybody goes it on their own, then the winning score might be in like the one thirties or something. But if if everybody starts cooperating, then you're going to get up to one seventy, maybe even one eighty for the winning score yeah just because helping each other helps yourself that's co-opetition yeah so i want to take a moment here and just talk about the five to six year run that wallace has and these this isn't every title he made over that with brass being released in 2007 if we take a look just a couple years on either side we have railroad tycoon it's a co-design but you know would ultimately become railways of the world we have struggle of empires Tempest, Brass, Tinner's Trail, Automobile, and then he revisits the Age of Steam formula with Just Steam. That's an amazing run of quality games at that time that all had unique mechanisms. It didn't feel like he was just following the herd on any of those. Do you think he receives enough credit, I should say, for his design streak? That's a pretty good question. I, I mean, yeah. I, I do. At least he, he used to. Right. <laughs> I don't know about today, but, you know, back in those days, we were talking Wallace all the time. We were like, oh, what what's the next game he's going to make? I can't wait to see it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Because, well, but it's always been a little dicey with Wallace because there's games that come out. We were talking about Mythotopia before we started a game that came out and my first play by the end of the game, I thought they didn't complete the game. There, there's no ending right. to this game. It, it wasn't ready to be published or, you know, the saga with age of steam and then steam and just, he's constantly tweaking the games and there's a, a different version of that game under a different publisher. And it starts to get a little bit confusing uh, as right. to what's what's the definitive edition? What do I like? You know, which game version do I like the most? Of Age of Steam? Well, of all of it. I mean, or all of it. A Study or in Emerald. You know, that we were just talking about the third version of Study of em Emerald is coming out. Right. Which one exactly. is the definitive? It, or does it matter? You know, but it's just, it's hard. The answer is the first. Because that's the one you own. <laughs> yeah, it matters to me. Hey, now. <laughs> All right, so then moving on to the prompts, let's talk about weight and complexity. So on Board Game Geek scale of one to five, which also aligns with Board Game Arena, where it's called complexity, how would you rate the weight of Brass and specifically Brass Lancashire? Paul? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but given the amount of time it takes, uh, especially for your first game and, and the amount of head scratching that I can still do sometimes, I, I'm going to rate it a four. All right. Yeah, I, it's definitely a four for me. 
there's certainly enough fiddliness when you're learning the game, when you're, I mean, all the time we have to watch over each other and go like, well, wait, you can't get coal if you build there, you need a link. Like, oh yeah, that's right. Or wait, <laughs> my industry card, Can I? do I have to be connected to play my industry card? Or the biggest thing I learned about the game is when Paul told me iron is magic because like the coal needs rail, but iron's magic. It just floats wherever you need it. I'm like, oh, got it. Now it makes sense. So if I need iron, I can just take it from anywhere on the board. But coal needs to be connected to a port. And those, I mean, the rules have a lot of like, in the exception of, or in this certain case, uh, there's at the back of the rules, there's 15 of like easily forgotten rules. I mean, it's a long <laughs> list of easily forgotten rules. So when you've played it a bunch, it all flows. But even last night when we were playing, there was a couple of times when somebody's like, oh, wait, I can't use this card to build there, right? Oh, yeah, right. And there's that still kind of needling you. So once you get the rules down now, like I said a few games ago, this game is so hard because there's what I want to do and I can't make that happen. It's such a struggle. So it, complexity, I mean, it's almost a five, but I'm going to put it at four. Is that what you were uh, hesitant about, Paul? You weren't sure if you wanted to go all the way to five? No, I, I was thinking of going down to three, honestly. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> because, you know, what, when we played it back to back to back, we were finishing it in 100 minutes or less. Oh, yeah. And it just it felt like there was a story to the game. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it took a lot of proficiency to get there. Right. Exactly. If it takes 10 plays to get to that point, then it's by definition complex. <laughs> that's that's a good rule of thumb. I agree. And you're right. There is a lot to track here and canal, but understanding the relationship between development and building and how those are going to affect the points, that building the networks, and then the finances. I can never, every time I run into a Martin Wallace game, I'm always surprised by how punishing the finances can be, even though in brass, they're not so bad, right? You just drop back three steps. But we've seen, there was a game where Greg dropped back to max deficit, like minus eight, minus nine, early on in the canal phase. And then he was able to turn that into a roaring comeback because he had primed the pump. But there are so many things to keep track of that I agree. It's definitely a solid four for me. I don't think even with proficiency, it gets less complex. It's just your ability to evaluate the game gets faster. So then strategy. Let's talk about how much opportunity for strategy you think there is in this game. And we've kind of hinted at it, so I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are. Dave, why don't you kick us off? Well, I think strategy-wise, this is the level that I'm constantly looking for, that it has some path dependency, that if I'm starting to develop cotton, then my game is going to revolve around cotton at some point. So it has path dependency, but it's not, I'm not pigeonholed because I can't win by just doing that cotton. I might have to build some ports myself. You know, I might have to get into iron or, or other things. So Great Western Trail has that too. We talked about it. You go cowboys or you go engineers or whatever you go, you're still going to have to build some buildings. You're still going to have to dabble a little bit in the other strategies. This one, I think you probably have to dabble more in the other strategies than in Great Western Trail, but it still has by you know turn one turn two you pretty much know the path you need to go and then it's just a matter of can you flow downstream with what the game gives you to accomplish it so strategy wise i mean i think it's a five nice paul what did you have well it depends on the version so for me as we've talked about lancashire has a limited number of winning strategies and players must follow those strategies and really the game and why I like it is the competition and 
the elbowing and jostling to see who gets to follow each one of those strategies. And uh, on the flip side, you know, you, you do have to be on your toes for much of the game, ready to react to things that happen. So I, I rate the original Brass as a four in strategy. Birmingham, I think, is so focused on beer. That's really the only strategy. And so everybody does it. And at that point, it becomes a game of opportunities and seizing your chance. And so I would rate Brass Birmingham as a three in the strategy department. I think it's interesting because like we had a game, Paul, where you did not set out to, you You ended up winning and it's the game that Dave said he should have overbuilt you instead of overbuilding Greg. We thought Greg was in the lead. You ended up winning because you were the only person that was going shipyards in the rail phase and you didn't start out going down that route. So you had started out doing more coal and iron in canal and then we left it open. And so you just saw the opportunity to go in there and own that and get to those spots on the board. And so I think about it as like, that was something the cards in the rail phase told you to do. Plus the, the opportunities that were left on the board uh, for me, strategy is going to be a four because those cards still have a, a big effect on what you're able to do. And you could set up to right. go hardcore and cotton in the canal phase and the cards that you draw in the rail phase don't help you a whole lot to continue along that line unless you take the wild action, maybe. I was very surprised I won that game. Um, <laughs> I did not have a strategy. I, I mean, my strategy was rail and iron. Okay. Uh, because I I had level two cotton. I had, I had level three ports. I, I, I did not have a single way to go. But yeah, like you said, I was able to get a lot of rail, get all my iron out and, and build the two shipyards and uh, convince other people I was not leading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that worked. Well, I think that gets into uh, the next topic we're going to get to with luck, because I think part of what happened with that game is the foreign market was very friendly to the cotton players and not very friendly to the port players that you guys were able to ship a lot to the foreign markets. We saw the zeros and the negative ones. So you weren't forced to ship our ports. Right. And I overinvested maybe one port too many. And that's when Paul shifted over to uh, shipyards, seeing that all these ports are not going to ship from the cotton players. So that's where luck does come into the game that way as to how that's going to happen. But then again, it's, you just have to read it on the board and you, you can't drop all your ports out in the beginning you got to see what the foreign markets are going to do first. All right. So you know the drill score one to five. How would you rate luck in brass? I I think it's a two, which is, I mean, just the nature of having a deck of cards. It's hard to put it as low as a two because there are certainly some games where every time I need a card, I'm holding it in my hand, you know, and it is hand management. So you make sure you have those cards and you get to see plenty of cards to kind of organize them. But there are certainly some games where like, I wish I had a Mansfield. Oh, here it is. Or, you know, whatever, where you just top right. deck what you need. And like I said, with the foreign markets, if you're a cotton player and all of a sudden the foreign markets are being friendly and you can just flip all of your cotton without having to link to the ports and things like that, it can just work out easy for you or it can get tough. So I still think, though, I'm putting it at a two. As we often say, the better players are going to win. The cards and the foreign markets usually aren't going to decide the winner. Okay. 
I had it as a three, but for many of the same reasons, you touched on it. The fact that there are going to be those times where you want to do something. And, and how about that sinking feeling you get when you take your last turn where you're able to draw two cards and now you know what your hand is for the remainder of that fa- of that era, right? Whether it's canal or rail. And you know whether or not you've drawn the card you were hoping for or not. And now you're trying to figure out how do I make do with what I have? Do I need to take that wild action? And sometimes it makes sense to do it. I remember there was a time where I needed to overbuild and the only way I was going to do it was to play two cards to get a while to be able to put it down where I wanted to. I'm not saying that three is 50-50 luck. That's probably closer to five in my book. So this is a three for luck for me. And it has to do with how those cards are shaping your strategy. Paul, what did you have? Well, I've just been thinking that this is a game with multi-use cards, even though each card only has one graphic on it. Because all the actions you can take don't care about your cards except for the build action. So I love that hand management part of the game. And so there has to be some luck, but personally, I I think it's very low. So I rated a two. Okay. Theme. How much do we think the theme has been integrated with this game? Keep in mind, none of us were alive during England's Industrial Revolution. (laughs) Thanks for pointing (laughs) that out. I, I mean, it does very much depict the growth of industry. You're taking a board with very little on it, And then all of a sudden, it's got all these buildings and canals and rail networks by the end of the game. And you're like, wow, look at this change. Right. So I didn't know what to rate it. So I give it a three. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I, I give it a four. I mean, the the cities are historically accurate. You know, this is where the ports are. This is where the cotton mills are. It's by the end, by the time you've gone from these like empty fields and small hamlets to the end of the game, you can practically see like a layer of haze over the top of the board, kind of coal dust everywhere. Like, <laughs> it, it like it really works that way. And that's as far as integrated theme is that, you know, they got to ship the cotton. They have to go through the ports, things like that. I think it integrates very well kind of beyond that. Just the I don't know, the organization or the presentation of the theme is fantastic, especially when you get into the Roxley version that that one is literally, you know, my wife came in and to, you know, saw my game shelf and said, I want to play that game. And I had to steer her to another game, knowing full well she would hate this game. But it's a very, (laughs) the theme, the artwork is so great and how it integrates with the theme. It's a very great looking game. All right. You you convinced me, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) He convinced you. So now it's a four in your book too? Yeah. Well then let's just make it (laughs) unanimous because... I also thought at least the, the Roxley version, and I even had the same thought, Dave, that the, the darker tones was like more in alignment with the soot from coal powered factories. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was great. So I would say that the Roxley version is a four and I would drop the Warfrog threaded version down to a three. Not that it's layout wasn't great. And in some ways it might even be better. We can talk about that in versions, but I thought as far as the theme goes, I think Roxley gets the edge here and is a four. Well, and along those lines too, I think Paul has a very good explanation. Uh, you'd have to remind me of it as like, why do, does my coal need a link and why can my iron can fly, just fly across the board? Wait, just based on how heavy it is. Because the iron is tools and things like that. So it's, it's going right. by truck. Or, or horse and carriage. Yeah. Yeah. So thematically, it's supporting these mechanisms in the game, I think, very well. Very true. Yep. So favorite player count. What is the best this game is played at? So I've talked about this before. <laughs> Brass, the original, 
it's really to me it's only a four player game and i've different thoughts about birmingham but i'll save those for later okay yeah i agree i and we pretty much already said it four players is the way to go because of that what i'm here for is that player interdependency and having a fourth player is just more, three more relationship connections in the game three players is fine and the roxley version scales where you actually remove some cards or you discard some cards early you only take uh, I, I forget what it is but you have fewer actions in the three-player game, so you don't get too high octane being able to get all of your cotton on the board and flipped. To me, that's a little bit of a compromise playing at three. It's just because I really wanted to play brass, but really I'd rather hold out and play with four. Right. And I agree with four players. Just that chaos introduction of the fourth player trying to find a viable strategy. There's no clear-cut lane for them to stay in. And then once they start competing... In one other, now they've disrupted somebody out of their swim lane, which means they're going to be disrupting someone else. And that's where the game really starts to shine in my book. So this probably is an easy question to answer, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. So least favorite player count? What do you guys have for this one? Well, it's two. Well, with the new Roxley version, I, I think three player is my least favorite. I, oh. I really appreciate the two player version on either side of the board. Right. Okay, that's true. I will say that I had it down as to more because there's a map that makes it better just because it becomes much more tactical because the actions are either directly benefiting you or a singular opponent versus trying to figure out, to use your example, Dave, which whose ports am I going to ship my goods through, understanding that I'm going to be helping one person, but maybe not the leader and having those options. I, I'd say that that flexibility makes three players shine a little bit brighter than two, which means two can still be a good game, but would be my least favorite player count. It's all about hand management, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I say two as well, because those interchanges are zero sum. When I overbuild your iron or when I ship through your port, I like the decision on if I get the choice, I'm not going to ship through that person's port because I think they're winning. So I'm going to ship through somebody else's port or something like that. Or I'm not going to do what I can. I'm going to do what I can to bash the leader, but I can cooperate with these other players. And that interdependency, since that's what I love so much about the game, a lot of it's lost in the two player version. Yep. So then actual playing time. So the box says this game can be played in 60 to 120. What are your thoughts on the actual playing time it takes for us to get through a game? And we've well, my very first play, yeah, which was probably like thirteen years ago. I don't know. I, I think it took five hours. We <laughs> were constantly opening up the rule book, saying, "What happens here? What's the exception for this? What the heck is this line between <laughs> Liverpool and Birkenhead?" Yeah, right. <laughs> But yeah, after 20 plays, I feel like we got it down to 100 minutes. Yeah, we so in 2013, when we were doing our 20 plays, we were keeping pretty good geek lists that after every game night, we would put together a geek list of the games that were played, and then we would have open conversation about the games. And I went back and read through some of them, and around, you know, between five and 10 plays, there were a lot of comments on how we're getting actually pretty fast at the game, and that playing time has really come down as we've had the rules overhead kind of we're fluent in it. But I think 30 minutes per player is pretty accurate. Yeah, I would agree. As we dusted off the games and got back into them, we were a little bit higher, but we got back down into, you know, the two hour range and, and I could see us getting, you know, shaving more time off of that. So those are four player games. So I agree. It seems that's actually a reasonable estimation for how long the game takes. 
which edition of the game is the best? And we can talk versions here. This is probably a good opportunity for us to talk about some of the differences that Brass Lancashire has with Birmingham. Paul? Yeah, so as I hinted at before, Brass Birmingham, the beer is all powerful <laughs> and basically everybody needs to compete for beer. If a single player is allowed to flip all of their beer and supply to everybody else, that beer player is almost always going to be the winner. And because of that, Birmingham is is a far more tactical game and to me that makes it more desirable to play with less than four players. I think Birmingham is at its best when you're playing with two or three players, whereas Brass, now Lancashire, for me, really only works at four players. All right. And I guess one of the reasons for that, beyond the different strategic nature of the games, is the depth of development that the different tracks have, like cotton and manufactured goods. And in the four-player version of Birmingham, you just don't have enough actions because the deck is a certain size. Whereas three- and two-player plays, you have more actions, you can actually get to the end of those development tracks and explore deeper strategies. All right. Yep. I, I think the difference between Lancashire and Birmingham, it, it's a really interesting thing to look at, I think. And I do have a hard time articulating it, but... Birmingham is much more popular. And I think part of that is a lot of people who've played Birmingham have never played Lancashire. I think Lancashire is a harder game to do well at because of that player interdependency. Birmingham usually has a plan B. The thing with Lancashire is you got your plan A, and if that doesn't work out, then you just got to scrap together what you can. But in Birmingham, if you take the beer that I wanted, if you you know build a canal where I wanted to build, that's fine. I'll, I'll just go do something else. Now, I wouldn't say it's a point salad, but it's less of a you know kick to the gut when you take something that I really wanted, and I can usually find a way around it. I don't think the tension is as strong. Like if if I need beer to ship something, well, I'll just, I'll build my own beer. So it has less of that player interdependency. And I was actually getting to the point where I thought, Lancashire is just so superior, why even play Birmingham? But I'm glad we played Birmingham recently that I am reminded that it is still really fun. It's, it is still a really great game. But when it comes down to the two, I really want that pointy elbow player interdependency of, that I get in Lancashire. Yeah, so I, I think the elephant in the room that you're pointing out is that Brass Birmingham is rated number one on Board Game Geek right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to say what I guess is the Paul conjecture <laughs> is that the BGG ratings are heavily influenced by how good the game is with two players. Yeah. Okay. Continue. That's my conjecture. Yeah. A lot of people don't have the luxury of four players that we have. Right. And if you don't have four players, like I said, it's much better to play Birmingham than Lancashire, in my opinion. I think that's a great point. Yeah. All right. You know, between the two, and perhaps because we have our great group, I prefer Lancashire. I feel like Birmingham has more catch-up bonuses, as opposed to my having to go through either a player's port or sell to foreign markets if it works out. I can get to an external market, and depending on which one I use, I might get a bonus, right? I might get a free development, or I could get a free step up the income track. Sometimes there's going to be a beer that I can use to help uh, offset the cost of shipping that particular thing. Whatever it is, those little bonuses help catch up. The rails have changed the value of places on the map. So before, where it might have been 
Manchester and then, you know, one of the two cities next to it that had three spaces to get a, a max of seven. We were seeing values coming out of Birmingham that were nine points just for Birmingham alone based on what had been built there. That's actually probably too high. It was more like seven out of Birmingham and then adding in the link, but whatever, the link points went up and some places on the map got more valuable because of the industries that had been built there. So I feel like it added more variable setup to the game. And that's another thing that is in the current zeitgeist as opposed to the original brass. The link points you're talking about, are is it variable or is it player controlled? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is player controlled, but you're right. It's not variable in that it gets randomly assigned at the start of the game and then that's what the value is going to be. Players will determine what it ends up being. If they have a mind to check that, they might just be building out their network and what winds up there is what winds <laughs> up <point>. there. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. But the variable setup of the off-board markets, that is, is fantastic. You know, the game we played last night, there was almost nothing going on up north in the canal phase. It was, everything was really focused down, you know, down south in Birmingham. And it just every time you play, that board's going to develop differently and it doesn't feel forced. Some games have randomized setup and things like that, where it kind of feels a little bit forced or a little bit you know, chaotic. Whereas this, you just get almost like an organically differently developing board, which I think is really nice part about Birmingham. Yeah, I agree. And so is the scout action. Right. Well, the scout action, I don't know if I like it as much because it it, it, it's, <laughs> it makes it easier. And I just generally don't like things that make things easier. I want games to be hard. I agree. Yeah. Instead of sacrificing two cards for one action, you're sacrificing three cards for two actions. And those two actions are both wild, although they're not completely open wild. There's one of industry, one of location, but still it's a better exchange for you as the player to lose half a tempo instead of a full tempo. Right. Well, the scout action is great. One for controlling turn order. There's another thing that you can do on your turn that costs nothing. So if you want to do a fourth to first kind of turn order thing. And also my feeling kind of early on in playing Birmingham is that especially in the rail phase early on do a scout action so that later in the game i'm sitting on those wild cards that i can use as needed right so it just gives you something to do when you feel like you don't have a really strong play right now yeah i certainly wish i had scouted early last night (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) right and it helps you make your strategy work out all this has been about version on editions of the game i'm going to give the edge to the roxley deluxe edition with the iron clays We've used the Iron Clays now in just about every game where we can substitute them for currency. But it does have one little thing about it I don't like as much as the original Warfrog or Fred Games editions. And that was the way the foreign market tracks snakes back and forth. I wish it was just the straight track that it was on the original. Mm-hmm. But I prefer the fact that it has the scoring track around the edge of the board as opposed to the snaking track that was in the original version. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, come on, folks, just make them both straight. Yeah. I slightly prefer the color and the utilitarianness of the original brass yeah. to the Roxley reprint. But overall, they're pretty much even to me. I, I am happy playing either one. I appreciate that because generally we go for function over aesthetics. And we could list 20 games right now where the aesthetics start to hurt the function in newer editions. In this case, right. though, the Roxley version, it, I mean, it's just so beautiful. It's such great table presence. It's a great looking game. And as functional as the original, 
I don't think there's really anything that I think it doesn't do as well as the original, but also improvements is that it's much easier to see the flipped versus unflipped tiles. I like the mm, color right. coding of the cards. The player boards are nice when you haven't played in a while. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because we had the opportunity to play both versions recently, you know, and kind of prep for this because we hadn't played in a little while. And so we played the Roxley version. And then the next week we get out the old version. And I'm like, where are the player boards? What, we just pile these tiles in front of us? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> But and, I, and the color coding of the cards, I think, is super great, too. I spend way too much time. I'm like, where is Colne again? And like in the Roxy version, oh, like, oh, it's in the green section. That really helps. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And even though the original version had a little map on the card, yeah, you know, it had a little map on the card. And so you could see where it was supposed to be on the board. I agree that the color coded regions of the Roxy version make it easier. All right. Most recognizable comparisons. The highest ranking game that reminds you the most of Brass. These are going to be hard, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm super curious to hear what you guys come up with on this. Yeah, I think Dave might take mine. All right, oh, yeah. well then, you know, flip for it. Who gets to go? Well, I have two. So if somebody takes mine, I'll just, well, all right, so I'll go. I- I'm going to go with Pipeline. Okay. Oh, nice. Pipeline is a game that we don't play enough. We had a short run with it, and then it kind of got overstepped by a few other games. I'd love to get back to it. Pipeline, heavy economic game, that market competition, and network building as that super fantastic game that I would say if you if you are looking for you really liked brass, you're looking for another, you know, game that you might also like, I would definitely look at Pipeline. All right. Yeah, I went the other I just took out the economic part of the game and I said, What what's like brass without the economics? And I came up with Thern and Taxes. Mm, yep. Uh, you're, nice. you're managing a hand of location cards to build a network. And that's exactly what you're trying to do with brass. Yeah. Just the way you earn points is different. Yeah, absolutely. Great one. I thought of that one too, but I want to save it for a future pod. So I went with Clans of Caledonia. You know, you're building up the Scottish industry. It's not exactly like for like as brass, but there is development where you're upgrading your technology. There's a building bonus for getting four buildings of the same type onto the map, which felt like placing cotton factories. And it's also industrial revolution themed. So I, I have Clans of Caledonia there. Nice. Less recognizable comparison. I get to go last on this one just because I know neither of you are going to pick what I have here. So what's a, what's a less well-known game that makes you think of brass? Go ahead, Dave. Well, I have two here too. So, but I'm just going to pick one. Uh, I'm going to say wildcatters. Yeah. It has that cooperation thing where we need to fill this area together before the ship comes and takes wow, it away. That's a good one. I, yeah, I think I like wildcatters more than you guys do. Cause we don't bring that out enough, but I, no, I like it a lot. Yeah. I didn't even consider that one. Awesome. So I'm I'm going with High Frontier. Oh, wow. It's a yes. game of space exploration. <laughs> so you start the game by winning cards at auction, but you have to manage this hand of cards to enable yourself to create these uh, way stations in space to propel you further and further. And so it's a weak connection to brass, but there's a very strong economy based around water and orbit instead of pounds. <laughs> right. And it, there's a lot of competition and cooperation and getting you and your frenemies out there. And uh, I, I could go on and on, but your turn, Todd. Well, and you are the, the consummate tutor on that game, too. I remember you, Al, and I had a few plays of that the same year. And you telling me how to calculate what my launching load was and how to figure out how to get into low Earth orbit and all that. That game was great. It's a good comparison. 
I have a game that is, I'm going to just absolutely butcher the title. It's called Hashbalnecht, which is the story of early coal mining. And it takes place in, uh, I believe, the Ruhr River Valley in Germany. And it is coal mining. And it had one element that really stood out to me when I started thinking about this beyond the time period and the fact that it was coal. It has that similar turn order mechanism where the value of the actions you selected get summed together. And then the player with the lowest total goes first on the next round. And it engenders that same idea of, okay, I want to go last. How do I string two turns together? And then picking your actions accordingly so that you've underspent everybody who went before you and then being able to climb the mountain and go first on the next round. I'm not familiar with that. Well, we can play it whenever you'd like. Yeah. All right. House rules. How would you improve the game? And I have many thoughts. Okay. Well, the one thing I would like, and this is from Birmingham, Birmingham explicitly says... If you have nothing on the board, you can build a canal first. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be able to do that in Lancashire as well. I don't know if it would mess with the game balance, but I I think it'd be a great house rule. All right. Yeah, it gives you a chance to go wherever you need to go on the board if your other cards aren't doing that. Well, it also sets you up for the next turn, right? If you, especially if you're linking to an off-board market so that you can pull in coal as needed so that you don't need to worry about linking to it. Exactly. I mean, it, it might be too broken because it would allow you to build a level two cotton mill right away and and flip it. But I, I don't know. Didn't you use it in Birmingham last night where you did canal coal? I did canal and then I did lone iron. Right. And then I think I did lone first and then I did whatever next. But anyway... on the first turn is such a funny move it's like let's play this game i'm gonna need some more money (laughs) i'm gonna need some money and i'm gonna go first in the next round that's what that was i'm gonna start the game by going into debt well because you guys had both you and greg had both developed so the steel market was already getting small i wanted to have a chance to have some money to build and get started okay dave thoughts about house rules House rules, I might have some sort of bid for player order in the first turn. So the rest of the game, how much player order really matters and how important that is in the game and how interesting it is in the game. I really didn't like our last few plays where I went third and somebody developed cotton, somebody else developed cotton. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not playing cotton, even though I'm holding Mansfield and Colin. And these are cards that really want to go cotton. I think that road is... That road's been hoed and it's really tough to, you know, get out and enter that fight and then just leave ports to the fourth player. So I don't know what we would bid. I mean, I guess you could just bid points. You could bid incomes or just money. Right. I think that's awesome. So I had two. One of them was, and this would completely revamp the game, turn it into something else. But I think one of the advantages, and we talked about it, that Brum has is the scout action, right? And the fact that you're able to pick up two wilds for discarding three cards, but essentially you're paying a card for the privilege and then you're swapping out two of your cards for two wilds. I think it would be interesting to have a card draft at the start of each round where you lay out two times the number of players of cards and then you bid on which cards you want. So if you think you're going to string together a great strategy for cotton, I can make you pay dearly for it. Hmm. Like I said, it's a completely different game, but it is. I, I think there's something there. And then you'd have to look at the payouts because you have to allow some money to go into the auction. So it would be more of a redesign, but I, I think there's something interesting there that could be built upon the foundation of brass. The other idea I had had to do with point scoring, and that is it's not hidden but trackable. There's no hidden but trackable information. It's all there, 
we just don't do a great job of ingesting it and truly knowing who's in the lead at a given time. So Dave, if we talk about that time when you should have overbuilt Paul instead of Greg, had we done a better job of keeping a running total of who was actually in the lead, it would have been a more effective thing. That's true. So I feel like there could be a better score tracking mechanism rather than wait till the end of the era and then do all your scoring at once. That, that is true. Although in that case, it wasn't necessarily that Paul was in the lead at the time, but it was he had the opportunity to build a second shipyard that I didn't realize. But yeah, because those decision points on whose iron do you overbuild or whose ports do you flip? Those are so important because they're taking points away from somebody and you pick who they're taking away from. It's super important to know who's winning. And sometimes it's really hard to know who's going to, who's in a position to win. Sometimes I'll just count how many rails do you have left in your inventory to get an idea of how many rails you have on the board. Right. But it's still really hard to tell who's winning sometimes. I agree. All right. So if this game is being played at game night, what's the double feature game that goes along with it? What are your thoughts here, Paul? It was great back when we would play it back to back, but uh, the standard Paul answer. <laughs> that is the Paul answer. <laughs> These days, I think I would pick a social deduction game like Avalon or So Clover. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I do like following up uh, a heavy game with kind of a lighter game or a more just not, not a party game, but more of a just kind of player fun game. Although in, in my choice here is Anno 1800. It's uh, it's a shorter <laughs> game. It, it's not as heavy. Well, I like a party game, Anno 1800. <laughs> I was just, I was affirming Paul's choice, but that's not my okay. choice. I, I like Anno 1800. It's, it's a little bit shorter, a little bit lighter, but also just a great full experience. And it's, you're in that Martin Wallace space already. So, you know, stick with it. Yes. I like that idea too. I was thinking about a lighter game that felt anything like brass and I actually like your ideas better, but the closest I got was the network building in Hansa Teutonica. And that's a shorter game as well. So if you like fill in the blank, then you're going to like brass. What's an attribute of the game that might make you want to give this one a try? Aside from the fact that, you know, at least Brum is number one on BGG. This being the original version, what might make you want to give Brass Lancashire a try? I think if you like difficult decisions and having 2020 hindsight of your early game mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) If you like regret. You're going to love this. Yeah, you know, because... (laughs) That's just Wallace games, though. (laughs) No, my point is, some heavy games... You're like, where did I go wrong? What what did I do that put me in this position? Yeah. I think in brass, you know exactly what you did wrong. And that yeah. that is something that can help you learn to play better. I sometimes know what went wrong while I'm doing it. <laughs> in real time, I'm losing the game. I think here, if you like co-opetition, that where we got to work together a mm-hmm. little bit, but I don't want to help you too much. If you like that interplayer dynamic, then you probably like a game like this. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about it on other pods. So the idea of player caused chaos and how we really enjoy that in our games. And if you enjoy that as well, then you're going to like that here because it's definitely present in spades. And uh, I harken back to that story I talked about where I had only spent like eight pounds and thought I was going to go first. And then Greg slipped under me with seven pounds spend, went first, did the shipping to the foreign markets. And suddenly my entire worldview had changed very quickly and there was nothing I could do to stop it. And it was a brilliant play on his part. If you don't mind those kinds of things happening, uh, you're going to like this game. 
So if you don't like fill in the blank, so I guess, you know, player controlled chaos, sure. But, but something different, then you should steer clear of brass. Did you guys have a different one for this? Yeah, going into debt. <laughs> for real, yes. Yeah. Taking loans. If you don't like going into debt, then steer clear. Yeah, for sure. It, this is not a snowball game. This is uh, this is <laughs> this is a uh, hawk all your stuff and then explode. Yeah, <laughs> kind of game. I think if you don't like hurt the leader, some people don't like that kind of thing. Or if you don't like that kind of inflection between swimming upstream versus letting the stream take you, I think that's some people don't like that sort of feeling where there's like, I want to do what I want to do. I want to do these things. And if you don't want to be flexible and go where the game's going to take you as uncomfortable as it might feel, I think you're not going to like this sort of thing. If you're stubborn, you're not going to like this game. Well, that describes me pretty well. So <laughs> it's interesting. You said if you don't like picking on the leader, but I would say this game makes it harder because what we just talked about, that it's it's hard to know sometimes who the person is you should be picking on. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a player shortcoming. I mean, there's certain times like we knew what two games ago, we knew Greg was the leader. And right. so we were going to overbuild his stuff. We were going to try to not let him show. He was still able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. But there are certainly times where we need to work together to make sure this guy doesn't accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. Yep. And I agree with what you were saying about, you know, going with the flow versus swimming upstream. I had strategy that gets made or foiled by card draws. Did you go deep into development of coal or steel, but you didn't have a good build or overbuild candidate in your network in that rail phase, right? Did you not draw a city card that's going to allow you to do that? Are you going to have to sacrifice a tempo and an action to use it as a wild to do the thing you did, but now you're not going to score as many points? I mean, there are just times where there's going to be the thing that you want to do and your cards are just not going to work with you to do it. And if you don't like that, then probably want to steer clear of this one because there's just not enough isolation from the other players to make that work. That reminds me of something that Clearclaw wrote on Board Game Geek in reference to Wabash Cannonball is that somebody was complaining about it, that they felt that it's so opaque that you don't have control over your own destiny. And so they didn't like the game. But his comment was, okay, you've identified something in the game. You don't have control over your own destiny, except that now what? Now what are you going to do? Now how are you going to win the game? Which I thought was super interesting because some people look at that and go, I I don't have any control. Like these cards aren't what I want to do. I hate this game. But I think it's more of a matter. It's like a Zen approach of like, okay, now what am I going to do now that I don't have that control that I was hoping to have? What can I do? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's how Shut Up and Sit Down compared them. I remember seeing a long time ago, Lancashire is about what can I do? Birmingham is about what do I want to do? Because Birmingham, you can usually accomplish what you want to do. But in Lancashire, it's what am I able to do? And I thought that was a good distinction. I agree with that. Yeah, Yeah, 100%. Mic drop for shut up and sit down. Yeah. (laughs) Did this replace a previous game for you? I'm just going to jump in here and say no. But go ahead. What do you guys have? I think it stands alone. It like created a genre for me. So I agree. Well, and that in a way is a replacement. I think it didn't replace a specific game per se, but I think this is sort of what set me on the path towards more economic games. Because I was I was a strict Euro gamer before. That, that was all I played. Mm. And then this gets me a little more interested in heavier economic games. Got it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And has this game since been replaced? And if so, by what? Has Lancashire been replaced? 
not for me, but uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would say exactly <laughs> something different. Lancashire has not been replaced for me. <laughs> hey, if you want to say Brum, you can. Well, the, what Paul said and what I'm saying. I, I mean, like I said before, if if I've only got two or three players and I want to play brass, then Birmingham it is. Got it. You know, and I put down Age of Steam. I feel like that one gets to the table a lot more for us. Um, but maybe after this renaissance of playing brass, that's going to flip the table. But I'd say that Aegis team edges this one out. Yeah, I think you might be right because I, it's been nice to revisit brass. Um, I've forgotten how much I love both versions of the game because AOS has Age of Steam has pretty much replaced it. And I bet a year from now we're playing more Age of Steam than we are playing of brass. But well, I still love it. Brass doesn't have auctions, so I, I don't put them in the same bucket because of that. Okay. Yeah, Age of Steam did not show up on any of our comparison lists. So, yeah, they are different for sure. That's true. And an interesting metric. I didn't even think about that, but way to play the meta. <laughs> Soundtrack. What music would you want to listen to while playing? Did you guys have recommendations here? We actually played Brass the other day to a playlist. Yep. And it, it was pretty good. So just to contribute something, there's a movie that I enjoyed set in the same time frame called The Current War. And so I, I would recommend that soundtrack. All right. Actually, so the last couple of pods, I've been totally shilling for Melodice, which is mellow, M-E-L-O-D-I-C-E dot org. And they have a playlist for brass, both versions. And on that playlist, they have several tracks from the Anno 1800 video game by a composer named Dynamidian. And so we were actually not listening to a playlist. We were listening to the Anno 1800 soundtrack by Dynamidian. And I thought it was pretty well suited for, for the game we had. But I also noticed that I really wanted to turn it down low because I didn't want to have it too much louder than just completely background. Not that it was interrupting my thoughts, but we had to talk that much louder to be heard over the music. So in the background, it was great. Yeah, I like that kind of industrious, uh, classical sounding, kind of like you'd get from a, the Bugs Bunny cartoons that like bump, 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 <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> but that can, dun, 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 dun. But that, that can be a little overwhelming when you're trying to concentrate. It's still, there's a lot of good <laughs> Industrial Revolution area composers like Dvorak in that. And oh yeah, good one. Symphony Number no. Nine, with which is called the New World, which is about just kind of building and expanding, and that that can get a little uh, intense. So, like uh, his Serenade for Strings, I really would like. Um, if it even if all else fails, just my boy Franz Liszt can uh, come in and just put a mellow kind of overtone on it. So I'm going late <laughs> late 1800s uh, classical. Solid. I really like that. Okay, rating on Board Game Geek scale of 1 to 10, how do you guys rate Brass Lancashire? For me, it is an 8. Any more? Not in terms of rating, but any more comments about it? I feel like we've said everything there is to say. Um, <laughs> Reference everything that was just said. <laughs> Please see previous hour. Yeah. Right. Well, I rated a nine just because, I mean, I can't think of any other game or very many other games that I've had this sort of experience where we set out to play a bunch. It rewarded that journey that we went on with it and still to this day to bring it out and just have such a satisfying play of it. I'm wanting for nothing when I play the game. It's giving me everything I want from a good board game with my friends. So uh, I don't know what exactly keeps it from being a 10 for me, but uh, I'm going to keep it at a nine. <laughs> okay. 
I had it as an eight, but here's the thing. I really like this game. I'm looking forward to playing it more. And there's just a magical balance here. I'm not sure I can put my finger exactly on the pulse and know why this game works so well. I think it's probably you guys, right? It's the group dynamic. And if we got the playing time back down to 100 minutes or even lower, if we got it down to 90, this would be an absolute gem. And I think at those playing times, it's a nine. At the two hour mark or a little higher, it's an eight for me. It's fair. Last question. Is it replayable and how soon would you want to revisit the game? You know, for the purposes of explaining the pod, we've now played this game three times in three weeks. So we've been playing it every week. (laughs) Yeah. So what are your thoughts? I could still play it more, but the problem is we have so little time and so many games we don't play. So it is definitely replayable. Uh, I would love to revisit this on a regular basis. Sometimes, though, it, it just doesn't win out against the other games we have on the docket. Right. Yeah. I mean, just our experiment of playing it 20 times in one year, I think by definition makes it replayable. And like I said, how rewarding that was and how the 20th play was very different from the 15th, from the 10th. I mean, how much it continued to deepen as we got that deep into it. I think it makes it that way. I think we've had an interesting history with it where we had a bunch of those plays. The Roxley versions came out. So Birmingham is the new hot thing. So we played a bunch of Birmingham and we hadn't played Lancashire in a while. And then I think we kind of petered out on it. And I think it's because I like Lancashire so much more. And having Birmingham as the more recent experience, I was kind of falling out of love with it a little bit. But I think recently being able to play both old editions, new editions, Birmingham, Lancashire, being able to play all of it, it reminded me just how fantastic it is and how much we should keep it in rotation more. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely a replayable game. I've, I've definitely enjoyed going back to it and would like to keep playing it before the rules start to stagnate in my brain. Yes. It really needs an online version. There used to be a site that had it, but that site has since gone out of business. And so there really is no opportunity aside from perhaps Tabletop Simulator, which isn't my favorite. This is definitely a game that needs to find its way to a good online version. That'd be wonderful. With that, we have delivered our final goods, flipped our last ports. For our next episode, we'll be tripling down on a designer and doubling down on the theme. I'm looking forward to that one. And that wraps it up. Thank you for being available today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, me too. Yeah, great game. It's our 10-year anniversary. There it is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Replayable. Support for our podcast comes from listeners like you. You can support us at patreon.com slash replayable. Thank you for your support. You can find us online at replayable.fm, on Twitter as replayable.fm, and on Instagram as replayable.fm. We welcome your feedback, which is the only way that we're going to get better. You can get in touch with us via email at todd at replayable.fm. And if you're interested in sponsoring us, then please contact us at sponsors at replayable.fm. This episode of Replayable is brought to you by Floodgate Games, the makers of lasting games like Sagrada Artisans. Their motto is creating everlasting experiences through gaming, and that idea resonates with us here at Replayable. As a group of friends who have been enjoying weekly game nights for over 15 years, we have many fond memories that were forged over the gaming table. Gaming is what brought us together and keeps us coming back again and again. 
Thank you to Floodgate Games, creating everlasting experiences through gaming.